This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of May 29, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 431 of Defender Radio. Let's start with the obvious. Stopping conflict with wildlife before it begins is always our preference. And there's a lot of ways we can do that, as most conflict occurs when we've created a situation that allows for it, often through manipulation of resources. That is, we give food to animals and they say, hey, thanks, can I have some more? Or we knock down their houses and they show up and say, hey, thanks for building us this new house. The point is not giving food to animals, not knocking down their houses, and finding other ways to create coexistence are possible and, as science and history have shown us, work best at stopping conflict. But sometimes it goes a bit further, requiring immediate intervention. And, when the animal in question weighs a few hundred pounds, that intervention can get a little more complicated. But here's the thing, it really doesn't have to. In many cases, when police or other first responders are faced with managing wildlife like bears, there is a lack of training and tools, which can lead to drastic, lethal measures being taken. Sylvia Dolson and the Get Bear Smart Society in Whistler, however, can help these first responders manage bear conflicts while keeping themselves and the bears safe. To discuss how she and her colleagues train police, what kind of methods are employed, why tranquilizing isn't always ideal, and how we can all learn to get a bit smarter about bears, Sylvia joined Defender Radio. I think the smart place to start is to talk about the Get Bear Smart Society. Uh, Just sort of set up the the context for for who you are and who the society is. Can you give us the the two-minute history of the organization and what you do? So the Get Bear Smart Society helps communities become bear smart. So that can be through uh, education of residents or visitors to their community. Um, We also help with bear-proofing the waste systems and um, people's backyards. And lastly, we help um, wildlife managers and police officers to manage bears in a non-lethal manner. And this is all focused on the concept that we can coexist with bears, uh, particularly in, in areas like Windsor, where wildlife is, is just always there. Not Windsor, sorry, Whistler. Yeah, <laughs> so Windsor, boy, that's pretty urban. <laughs> yeah, th- those, those are bears yeah. made out of leftover GM parts. Um, <laughs> uh, in Whistler, yeah. no, Whistler, we've got a Whistler lot of is, we, we, we live in the forest here, and so bears have access to pretty much every square foot of this town at any point in time. And so we have to be well equipped to to deal with those situations. And then we have visitors from all over the world who, you know, have never seen a bear and may not even know what a bear is, but, you know, mostly they want to get a selfie with a bear. So that's becoming a huge problem. Yeah, and that's uh, we saw that in the last week with the sea lion in uh, Vancouver, yeah, uh, or Vancouver yeah. area. That was a, a really good yeah. highlight of when that goes wrong. Um, yeah, do not feed wildlife. Well, and that me- because what you know that messages across species too. Absolutely, yeah, and so you know, in feeding a bear, if you're going to hand feed a bear and your hand is near the bear's mouth, um, at some point somebody can expect to get bitten or slapped, mm-hmm. um, 
And that's just the way that a bear communicates. And people do all kinds of crazy things. They may tease the bear with food. I've seen it happen myself, and I had to sort of um, almost push somebody out of the way right before I could see the bear was going to slap her because she was teasing him with food, pulling it away, putting it there, pulling it away. And I moved her back, and uh, the paw came across, and it would have slapped her across the across the chest. So, yep. you know, things things happen. And, and bears don't have the same etiquette as humans, and so you have to have to expect them to behave the way they would with other bears. Yeah, and when they're uh, outweigh us by a couple hundred pounds and have those pancake-sized paws, um, it's a little more assertive. Yes, and um, you know a bear has five times the strength per pound of muscle that a human does. Wow! And so you know a little fifty-pound yearling has the strength of a 250-pound man. Yeah. And people, you know, may may not realize that. But you could see how quickly that sea lion pulled the girl into the water. No problem at all. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that was a big animal. <laughs> yeah. That was a large animal. Well, and I, I think maybe before we get into some of the, uh, the this topic of sort of the enforcement and education in that regard... What is it, do you think, and this is, you know, I'm asking you purely to speculate based on your experience and what you've seen. Why do so many people seem, I I mean, on one hand, when it comes to to some animals, they want to get up close and personal. They want to take the selfies. And then with others, uh, you know, and and in my experience, the coyote is that the perfect example of this. There's just just baseline fear that controls them. Uh, people yeah. don't typically huh. want to be close to coyotes, but then they want to get the selfie. And that's odd because, because they look like dogs. Well, right? and I, I, They're so familiar. And I think that's maybe one of the, the most striking parts of it too, is you consider how many people are afraid of dogs. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. in, in our circles mm-hmm. as animal people, and especially, you know, in my, my family as dog people uh, involved in agility and things like that, we don't, see it very much but when you do and you have this just instinctual fear of a dog uh and then you imagine what if it was a wild dog who you've been told is dangerous all your life um mm-hmm. why do you think some people and it it seems at least through media coverage that it's frequently tourists who want to get up close to mm-hmm. uh, to the wildlife yeah well it's, it's a novelty for them and we go through this every day here in Whistler and particularly on the highway where we end up with a bear jam, you know, 15 vehicles stop, 40 RVs, not 40 RVs, 4 RVs, and uh, they're blocking the highway completely because there's a bear feeding on grass at the side. And people will stand on the highway to get a picture, you know, with their cell phone. It's, just, it's a novelty for them. And I can't say, you know, in my younger years, I did do the same thing. Yeah. In Yellowstone or something, you know. If I saw a bear, oh my God, that was so exciting. And I can remember somebody uh, on a megaphone saying, please get back into your vehicle. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's not like we all haven't done something at some point, but I think we know more now yep. um, than we ever did before. And especially with social media, we're seeing the results of what can happen. We maybe were a little silly back in the day, and I didn't really realize what the outcome may be because you didn't see the video of a sea lion pulling a girl into the water. Like, I'm not going to the edge of the dock anymore and staring down at a sea lion. But remarkably... It's not going to happen. Remarkably, we've now got photos in the news of that dock being lined with tourists. 
uh, holding right. out their phones, yeah. wanting a shot yeah. of the sea lion. Like I, it, yeah. And and that's you know one of the things I've considered for the fur bears is you know there, there's always talk about multilingual signs that say don't feed the wildlife, but having multilingual cards and information that explains what can happen if you do. And particularly mm-hmm. the the concept, and this is you know, there are people who disagree with this. Um, although I think it is very frequently true, is the concept of you know a dead or a fed bear is a dead bear. Um, yeah, I hate that expression. I know, but it's <laughs> it's accurate because of the the way the system is currently set up. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's um, a bear who yeah, and certainly decides that coming toward people for food is a good idea. Yeah. It, yeah. they, while you or I know what's going on and know how to react, someone mm-hmm. who doesn't know what's going on or know how to react, uh, all of a sudden right. you've got a big problem. Yeah, especially those, you know, those cute, cuddly little um, teddy bears that we had in our cribs with us. They just weren't <laughs> scary, were they? Yeah. You know, we, we grew up um, being habituated to bears. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Yeah. I am so habituated to bears. <laughs> Because <laughs> I see them almost daily, yeah. you know. Yeah. Last night I came across a, like a 450 pounder, and I thought, "Wow, man, <laughs> belly dragger! I better, I better <laughs> keep a good distance here and just, you know, keep myself in check." Yeah, that's kind of like us with raccoons. They're yeah. like our annoying neighbors that we don't really want around here in the city, um, but show up and steal our food. Yeah, and they're interesting. I love mm-hmm. them, but still. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things that you do, and and this is something I, you and I have spoken about very briefly in the past, um, is the education for frontline officials. And I say this mm-hmm. because it's a very mm-hmm. broad term, because it's a very broad category of yeah. individuals with whom you work. Um, I'd like to start maybe at the beginning. When did you first realize there was a need to have a conversation with, be it you know, police, animal control, uh, uh, municipal bylaw officers, and so mm-hmm. on? Well, um, I started this work about 20 years ago, and uh, I think we realized it immediately. And uh, way back in the day, back then, like it was 1995, and um, we had a black bear task force in Whistler, and we knew that was one of the one of the things we needed to learn more about. And I actually went down to Mammoth Lakes, California, to um, you know shadow Steve Searles, who is a, um, a a bear shepherding expert down there. Uh, he does bear aversion. He actually works for the Mammoth Lakes Police Department now, and he's their animal guy. And I uh, just went down there to learn how these tactics work. And then brought them up here, brought Steve up here to do a session with our conservation officers and our police and our bylaw enforcement team. And uh, so that happened over two decades ago. And, and we weren't the first ones to do it. They've been doing this in national parks for, for, for a long time. Aversive conditioning has been used in national parks for much longer than we've been, than we've been doing it in urban areas. Uh, why do you think that is? Is it uh, is there a an active resistance, or do you think it's that again that concept we were talking about uh, earlier of sort of the the top down responsibility trickle of uh, wildlife management that seems to be happening mm-hmm. pretty much everywhere these days? Well, parks have always been, uh, you know, by their mandate, 
they've had to protect their wildlife. In communities, uh, bears were shot that came into town. I know if a bear wandered into the Whistler Village 20 years ago, he was just shot point blank. Mm -hmm. That was it. No questions asked. Uh, and then it was the residents who said, no, that's not, you know, that's not right. We need to have other ways to deal with this. And so, you know, it wasn't necessarily part of the mandate to conserve and protect the wildlife, although it very well should be. And, and, and we certainly we've evolved from that point now. Um, but, but it's always been part of the park's deal. Yeah. So I think that's why it happened first there. Well, and what was, uh, I mean, I know. Actually, the first time I thought about that. So it's a good, good question. Well, and that's, I, uh, I know that this was sort of a, a community wide initiative when you first did it. Um, yeah. But there seems to be at times a level of resistance um, still to providing a new way of thinking or a new way of training. Yeah, you know, well, that's with everything, isn't it? Yeah, true. No matter what gets, no matter what changes on the landscape or, or you know, people resist change. It's just human nature. Um, well, and how does the conversation go for you? Because I know it's it's sort of it's spread from Justin Whistler. Um, mm -hmm. I, I I guess I'm trying to think of how to structure this because it's such a again sort of a broad circular discussion. But mm -hmm. when you go to a community that's experiencing bear mm -hmm. conflict, and mm -hmm. and typically I would imagine lethal control is something that is on the table and maybe even their default. How do you first explain the benefits? Of, of both the coexistence and using the aversive techniques for uh, mm -hmm. officials? Well, first of all, shooting, shooting the animal is an endless cycle. Uh, you know, uh, where, wherever there is an available habitat niche, an animal will fill it. So you can keep shooting them, but a new animal will come in to use that habitat. Um, and, and, and I use that term loosely because really, you know, urban Urban areas are not really bear habitat, but if we're going to lay out a buffet of bird seed and compost and, and everything else, it becomes bear habitat. So, you know, in that case, we would need to, to remove the attractants that are bringing the bears in. Well, you know, it's, it's extremely bad for an organization or agency's public relations to kill bears. As society is no longer accepting that as a solution. And so it becomes um, a public relations issue for the agency. And also, I mean, you know, there are people, too, they want to do the right thing. Nobody wants to go out and shoot a bear just because they showed up in town. And so they, they want to have the tools and the know-how of how to resolve that without pulling out their 9 millimeter. You know, that, that's not a pretty sight at all. Um, and, and so all, all they need is the training and the tools and that provides them with more options. Well, and when you talk about uh, the tools and whatnot, and this is something that comes up a lot in the media, uh, and especially in social media, people say, oh, why don't you just tranquilize? Yeah. Is, and, and I want to sort of get this maybe out of the way first, is that a first or good option in many cases, or is it maybe a last resort type of I option? Would, personally, I consider it a last resort. Um, just as an example... Here in Whistler, um, when we had our the Ironman event last year, and a mother and cubs were along the trail eating berries, and racers 
continually were approaching the mother and cubs because they were on the trail that they were supposed to run. In terms of the, the, the bears, they're thinking, why do these people keep running at us? You know, they're supposed to give us a little bit of leeway here and go around. This is really impolite behavior, and so the mother charged them. Anyway, they ended up um, being treed, chased up a tree, and then officers came with tranquilizer guns and immobilized them in the tree. And, of course, then they have to fall out. They can't get up there. They can't crawl up the tree and carry them out. These bears are falling out from great heights. And when you uh, shoot a bear with a, a, a dart, they keep going up the tree. And so even though you might shoot them with a dart at a safe distance to fall, and, and really what is a safe distance? If you fall on your head at 10 feet or 30 feet, you know. Um, and so, you know, we've had animals die just from falling out of the tree. And in another year, we had those animals, uh, a mother and cubs, put in a trap all immobilized, the mother rolled over on her cub and suffocated it because she was, you know, only half there. She was immobilized, half sleeping, half awake, and and they couldn't get in there and, and get the sow off her cub, so the cub died. Yeah. yeah, that's tragic. It's very tragic. So many things can go wrong. Yeah, there are very clear risks to using tranquilizing as a, mm-hmm. uh, as a means of... Um, movement or, or sort of control. Uh, so what are the, the other tools then? You know, this, this is sort of the, I think the natural progression yeah. is if we can't do, if we're not going to kill them and tranquilizing mm-hmm. them isn't an option, uh, mm-hmm. what's in between? Yeah. So there's, you know, in, in that particular case that I just described, um, those, that family could have been left in the tree until the race was over. Bears are super comfortable in trees and that's their safe place. And so, you know, just getting a volunteer to man the base of the tree, they would not have come out of that tree um, and, until everybody had left. And so we've actually done that here in town, is is just man the tree and let them come down under the, you know, cover of darkness. Um, we also teach officers how to use rubber bullets, bean bags, which can be used at a closer distance. They don't quite have the impact of a rubber bullet. A bullet can actually kill a bear if used improperly. And so there's a lot of training that has to go into this as well. We have noise deterrence. You can use pepper spray. Um, the best thing to use is your own human dominance, to use your own voice, your own uh, body posturing. So if you stand facing a bear, square-shouldered, erect, um, that's a, a, a clear sign to that bear. He knows exactly that you are standing your ground. It's different than crouching down or turning to your side or turning to your back. The bear sees that as submission. If you add to that frontal body posture, stamping of the feet, clapping of the hands, a short bluff charge toward the bear, and yelling at the bear in a tone that, you mean it, you know, they get it. They absolutely get it. You don't actually need the rubber bullets and all of that unless you're working at a distance. Um, I, I, I really wish officers would use their body posturing more, but I, I think there's some embarrassment involved in that. They like to use their guns and tools. But you can... You can I think there's also a level of fear. Yes, for sure, uh, especially police officers. 
um, that they're, I mean, that's not what they're trained to do. And if they get a one day training or a couple of hours of training, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, they actually need to shadow somebody who's doing this kind of work because the first time you face off a bear, it can be pretty scary. Oh yeah. It's hard for me to remember what that was like, but I'm, I'm sure it was pretty scary, you know. I mean, I know, I know that I can bluff a bear. I know that if I, if I, if I, you know, deal with a bear the way he would deal with me, and then it's constantly negotiating a situation, I'm watching for every, every little facial expression, like if a bear draws his nose down and squares off his lip, that is the instant that the behavior is changing from relaxed to defensive or possibly assertive. Mm-hmm. And so you're watching for all of these key things. For a police officer that's had a couple of hours of training, you know, that's hard. It's hard to, first of all, get over your fear, and then secondly, to watch for these subtle little things. Well, and I think people, um, right? you know, I I spent a fair bit of time with police in my days as a journalist, and the amount of training they do um, on uh, just on simple and and I say simple, and it's by no means uh, simple. I don't want to undermine what they do, um, but straightforward work on t- in terms of you know how to apprehend someone who's belligerent. This is something like mm-hmm. on a regular mm-hmm. basis. They are going into mm-hmm. training seminars. They are talking with experts, uh, and even then, there are still a lot of flaws in that system. You know, and I just saw a very interesting uh, video about in Salt Lake City, uh, Utah where they are uh, using more and more de-escalation. And the the chief of police there is talking about how much more time they're spending in training and how much more investment they're making uh, mm-hmm. for this process. And the de-escalation, I would say, is almost kind of the equivalent of what we're talking about. Uh, so Absolutely. with humans, de-escalation with, with yeah. bears, we want to kind of, in a sense, escalate. <laughs> but it's it's the same concept of changing behavior to affect the yes. outcome without the use of force. Absolutely. And and um, and bears are actually much more manageable than people. Mm-hmm. You know, people's behavior can be a total wild card. In reality, bears are reasonably predictable. Um, in in the la- you know, in the last decade or so after having been around bears a lot, I've rarely been surprised by what they do. Yeah. Well, and you know, I can, I can see it coming every time. It's something I find amusing. And this, this is from my personal perspective. Um, you know, I, I've met you, I've seen you speak, I've interviewed you. Uh, and then I also have met, spent time with interviewed and seen speak, uh, Mike McIntosh, who's, uh, the, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, bear with us, uh, uh, rehab and sanctuary in Ontario here. And when I see Mike talk about it, and I remember having him at one of our uh, seminars, you know, he's 6'2", 6'4", 200 pounds, big man, big shoulders. He looks like, you know, you could drop him in the middle of a forest and he'd come out like the new king of the forest. And he, he says, I can scare away a bear. And you say, I bet you can. And then I, I look <laughs> at you and you say, I can scare away a bear. And I'm like, sure you can. Whatever you say, Sylvia. But you can. Yeah, and and yeah. that's and it's I, not about that exactly. It's about attitude. Yeah, and that's what I find very interesting, and I would think is maybe something. Um, and you would think police of all people would be able to sort of appreciate that concept. Uh, you know, what what's it like when you go mm-hmm. in front of a a squad of officers, um, and mm-hmm. it's you know little you standing there saying, "I'm going to teach." It's really you. good, actually, yeah. because 
because they see it's little me standing there. I'm five foot two for those people who can't see me, and you know, I'm, and uh, and so I am a fairly petite woman, and also I'm a woman, right? Yeah. And we're not supposed to be able to manhandle bears, but uh, I show video that I've collected over time, and uh, video I had actual video of a bear charging me, and uh, I was hand holding my video camera, and I yelled at the bear in a quite a tone <laughs> and and she stopped dead and she had cubs with her and yeah. she was salivating you could see how upset she was and you know my camera didn't even move i didn't i it, i wasn't nervous i just knew what to do i reacted the way i should have and the police are like did you have that camera on a tripod no i was just hand holding <laughs> it you know because i was walking around there and and, and the questions that come out like Really? Like, is this for real? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can do this. It's not about, you know, your size or anything. It's just that attitude. And you heard it in my voice, and they went, yeah, we heard it in your voice. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, so did the bear, and you can't bluff a bear. You know, they know. And, you know, people phone me, and they say, I've got a bear in my yard. I'm up against the forest. How do I get that bear out? And I explain how to do it, and I say, you know, you better mean it, because the bear will know if you're faking it. Um, you know, I was talking to a mother the other night, and she had four teenage boys, and I said, you know what? You know how to do this. <laughs> You've got four <laughs> teenage boys. Like, it's yeah. the same thing. <laughs> you just tell them in no uncertain terms. And she said, oh, I can do that. <laughs> well, I feel like that's if I... If I tell my wife I'm going to leave the dishes for the morning, uh, she could probably scare away a grizzly bear with the eyebrow lift. Um, <laughs> the eyes are critically important. That is the yeah. most important thing. So you know, and and I've gone to, I've gone to the landfill. We used to practice at the landfill when we were first learning how to do this. Uh, what techniques work best, and you know, we're trying to perfect things. And uh, we had an area where bears were feeding at a drop-off station. And we were trying rubber bullets, we were trying bean bags, we were trying just our voice, just noisy turns, running at the bear, all these different things. And then I said, you know, I'm going to try just staring this bear down until I creep him out. And I just stood there and stared at him. And he wouldn't look at me. And then he looked at me a couple of times, and we had eye-to-eye contact. And uh, he looked down, he looked back at me, and then he just turned around and fled. And he didn't stop running. And it's all about the eyes. And another circumstance, I was driving on the highway here, and there was a bear jam, and I stopped, and I was just, you know, in my civilian clothes. And so I started asking people if they could please get back in their vehicles and leave and leave the bear alone. And and I was getting sworn at and yelled at, and, you know, they were going to get their picture. So I thought, fine, I will go chase the bear off. So there's like 10 cars stopped. I go stamping up the hill to chase this bear off. I'm giving it my best tone of voice and my stamping and clapping of the hands. And uh, the bear is just standing there. I keep feeding. I thought, oh, my God, how embarrassing is this? <laughs> I kinda, you know, so I kind of hung my head down and turned around and left to go back to the car. And then I realized, oh, my God, I've got my sunglasses on. He couldn't see my eyes. Wow. And I turned around, and I was at probably 20 feet already further away from the bear. I turned around, and I yelled at him one more time and stared at him, and he looked at my eyes, 
And he turned around and galloped off. Jeez. And so I realized that day how important it was for the bear to see your eyes and to make that connection. And that's well, why, that's you know, we, we used to say uh, when you're in grizzly country, do not use direct eye contact mm-hmm. because it's very, very, very threatening. It's very interesting how that, that works. I mean, with dogs, you know, we know that they look at the, the different parts of the human face, but that's that's part of the domestication process yeah. over thousands of generations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they've learned to sort yeah. of, you know, we've selectively and artificially bred uh, them to recognize what we want from them, and they know how to look at us and understand. Uh, but when you're dealing with a wild mm-hmm. animal, both, you know, black bears and grizzly bears, it's, it's, it's really interesting how much... Uh, eye contact and, and facial features still play into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I used to, I used to wonder. I still I still wonder when I smile at my dog. You know, like she knows. She I guess she knows I'm not barring my teeth. But what does she think about that? You know. Yeah. And uh, I, I learned from a, a, a black bear researcher, Dr. Ben Killam. You know how the smile evolved in in humans over time. That originally. You know, millennia ago, we used to bar our teeth or smile to let the other person we were meeting know that, hey, you know, I'm friendly, but don't push it, right? Mm. And that, and and now it's just become a pleasant thing. But it evolved as uh, partially of a barring of the teeth, right? To just say, you know, I'm friendly, but don't uh, don't mess with me. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I thought would that think, was interesting. I would think your dog is probably looking at you going, saying, uh, looking at you <laughs> thinking, uh, poor human, you have such flat teeth. Um, <laughs> yeah. Look at those canines. You couldn't rip anything apart with those. <laughs> yeah. You uh, can't even catch a ball with them. Um, now, something that, uh, and again, I'm sort of playing on things I have seen on social media. As you know, one of the joys of my life is managing social media uh, and the comments. And... I uh, I occasionally see people who think, you know, there's two sides of this. One who think that hazing animals, be it coyotes or bears, uh, is is mean and potentially cruel. Um, you know, there's one, uh, someone recorded, and I'm sure you've seen this, a uh, uh, one of those Halloween light-up clown dolls from a yeah, garbage can, yeah, and the yeah. bear comes over, <laughs> and it scares the crap out of the bear, and he runs away. And I thought, that's awesome, right? I got you know, yeah. to get one of those for the raccoons. Um and people yeah. are commenting, saying that's cruelty. Um, and then on the flip yeah, side of that, yeah, I you... think we need to re- redefine cruelty. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> but, you know that's. But then we've got people sort that's of that's not cruelty. Well, so we've got people who think that it's 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 cruel or, or mean spirited to haze animals in this way when they're not necessarily doing anything wrong. And we've also got the people who think that the animals should be coming close to us, who should be around us mm-hmm. Uh, um, mm-hmm. at a. I, I won't say like right up against us, but you know, at a, a reasonable mm-hmm. distance. Uh, how do we communicate that it isn't cruel or mean spirited? Like this, this sort of feels like one of those we're trying to do what's it's right tough. for the animals. It's tough. Yeah, I mean, you can only explain it, and um, it's it's you know, I, I'm I'd be willing to call it a tough love approach, but I'm not willing to call it cruel. There's no cruelty involved whatsoever. And that's not to say that when, when things go wrong, it can't be cruel because bears have been killed with rubber bullets. But when it's properly, when, 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 you know, when projectiles are properly deployed, it is not cruel. 
Um, but the, but people officers do need the training so that the cruelty doesn't come into it because it, it can hurt. And uh, you know, there can be bruising from a rubber bullet that's that's shot too close with too little distance between you and the animal. So, um, you know, but when it's done properly, it, it, it's it's not cruel. You're just teaching a bear in a language that they understand what the limits of our tolerance are, what's acceptable behavior in human territory. We're not going out into the bear's den or into bear habitat and doing this. When a bear comes into an urban space, your home range, your den space, your house, they know where they are. They know it's, they know it's impolite and they're going to react as soon as people confirm, confirm that. But if you allow them to feed your bird feeder and, you know, stand on the porch taking their picture and giggling and laughing, the bear takes that as a as a signal that, oh, no problem. They're inviting me to, and they're sharing their food because bears share food resources. You always see 10, 20 bears at a salmon stream or, or many bears together at a landfill. They know how to share food resources, and it's not unusual for them to expect people to share theirs. Um, but we need to let them know that it's unacceptable to be hanging around and causing property damage and things like that on our turf. Well, and I think that plays also into what you were saying when, um, you know, a bear does get too close to a person, um, Mm -hmm. their behavior, the way they would manage another bear, uh, even in gentle terms for a black bear, can be extremely hazardous to a human. Yeah. It's the slap and run technique Mm -hmm. or the message bite. Even if you watch like a mother and a cub and they're in a narrow space, for example, and the mother wants to get past the cub, the mother will give a little message bite on the cub's shoulder to say, get out of my way. Yeah. And the cub, you know, reacts by getting out of the way and that's communication. So if people get too close to bears, they can get a message bite on the leg saying, whoa, too close, right? And that behavior um, can now, then... Now, we don't have a lot of fur and fat, so it, it hurts Well, more. speak to yourself, but... Um, <laughs> no, and that's, uh, that's again, where that, you know, you and I may not see these things as problematic, but, you know, you get a, a person who does not love wildlife or a tourist who does not understand, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden, they're calling the police, they're calling the officers, uh, they're, they're saying, what are you going to do about this animal? Um, mm-hmm. And that's where that conflict very, very quickly escalates. Now, one thing we've mm-hmm. been talking a lot about is sort of how this is done in um, the, you know, in an area like Whistler, where you do have a lot of development, but you're surrounded by by nature. Um, mm-hmm. What about in a circumstance, you know, in, in Vancouver or, you know, here in Hamilton, Steel City, uh, should a bear somehow, and this, you know, it's a long shot, but... If we get bears into these much more dense urban areas, can we use these same tools or do we need to reevaluate the strategy? Yeah, you need to reevaluate the strategy because if you don't have anywhere to send that bear where they have a clear avenue of escape and clear cover, you know, cover where they can go back into the forest or somewhere where it's acceptable to be. Uh, like we had a bear the other day in East Vancouver, you know, down at Pender and Renfrew near the PNE, difficult situation. The only thing that they can do is tranquilize the bear and, and move it out of there. 
And so what they need to have proper, first of all, the proper training, they need to have the tranquilizer guns, they need to have a catch net so the bear doesn't hit the pavement. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's problematic because if you have a bear in, in Toronto, what, once a year or once every two years, how many people can be trained to deal with that situation so that they're, that they're in the vicinity and can react in an appropriate amount of time. It's very problematic. Yeah, and that's, I think... And I, I don't have all the answers. I, I expect you to have all the answers, though. Um, that's why I'm interviewing <laughs> you, Sylvia. That's how this works. No, and I, that's a very fair, very, very, very fair comment is, you know, like I think in Toronto and in Hamilton, it makes sense if we're going to start with training and how to interact with animals. We look at raccoons and dogs and coyotes because that's what they're seeing. But to spend resources on training police on how to manage bears, I like, you know, that that simply, it doesn't equate in terms of the, the use of that training. Uh, if for some reason it becomes yeah. standard for bears to wander into uh, the most populated city in the country, then yeah, you know, let's step that up. But for now, I think it's a lesson where we can take potentially what you have done in Whistler and what other people have done in other um, areas around the world and apply that to, uh, again, you know, dealing with dogs, dealing with coyotes, dealing with raccoons, uh, because those mm-hmm. are also problems, um, you know, in, in the city of Toronto, in the city of Hamilton, in the city of Vancouver. And that training would be valuable. So it makes sense to maybe step back from it and say, you know, the situation in Toronto again, and we're not going to speculate too much about it, was very, very unfortunate, but it was almost a, a symphony of failures across the board. And on top of a highly unusual situation. Uh, now, had that been, you know, we look at what happened with a coyote in Toronto. Uh, it's got to be two or three years ago now where police responded by shooting at him. Um, and I said, no, like, hey, that's wildly unsafe. Uh, especially since you kept missing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, this is a problem yeah. as well. Uh, but You know, uh, in- ensuring a safe backdrop. And if you have a bear, uh, a black bear in the night, and you're shooting that moving target, um, yep. and-, and you're not properly trained, even I- I- I'm speaking about now using a lethal weapon, um, that is highly unsafe. Um it's actually happened here where police have, have done that. And we then had a wounded bear on two occasions running around town um, until he bled out and yeah. died. Just horrible, yeah. horrible. But it, it's a very difficult thing to do um, to shoot a, a black object in the dark that's yeah. moving. Well, and that's also then when we come back yeah. into the um, preventative. You know, I, I mean, this, this case in Toronto, mm-hmm. there's... Very little I think we can do about it now uh, outside of asking some pretty... Well, I think, although I I do think people can be trained, I'm not saying to train the entire, you know, police department for that, but there should be a few trained people that the police have their phone numbers and that they can come in and help in these situations. Yeah, well, and I think from what I read, and I, I tried to get my hands on pretty much every piece of media regarding this incident... Um, police did reach out. You know, they they did contact mm-hmm. the ministry, who's right. who should have come to assist and didn't. Um, and they reached out to, as I said, uh, Toronto Zoo, who said we have someone, but then we need, you know, where are we going to take this bear? 
Uh, how are we going to transport them? All of these other questions. So, you know, and they didn't have answers to that because that, again, is under the purview of MNR. And Toronto Police has no, I, I don't even think, authority to transport wildlife. Um, so, you know, you, you sort of, you as I said, it, it, it was a symphony of failures. And I think it makes... You know, and, and all that said, I mean, when it happened in downtown Vancouver... They did get the bear out safely, yeah. um, and the bear um, was relocated. So it's possible. Yes, um, and that's you know we uh, our our big advocacy push on this is to get either funding and training towards Toronto Police or to find out why MNR was unable to do this and realize that that is a problem. Right. Uh, yeah. And you know, I think looking to MNR is a good place to start. Yeah. Um, a lot of good questions for them these days. Um, <laughs> I heard you laugh. I got it on recording. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, I mean, in that case, again, we, we can circle around it for days and days and days. Yeah. Um, I think what we need to then address though, in a situation like that is why did the bear come in? Uh, and that's when we talk about these, I find often gets left out of the conversation, particularly in the media is that very, very integral question of why did this happen in the first place? Uh, when I was covering coyotes and, and stuff for the first time as a journalist, that was the question I kept coming up against that I really couldn't get good answers for until I turned my, my direction to, uh, you know, the academics and uh, nonprofits because uh, the, the government wasn't spending time on it. And the local authorities, whether it was animal control, humane society, police simply didn't have the, the expertise. Um, so in a lot of these cases, we then have to circle back to that very beginning of where you and I started today of why is there a problem? Why are the bears coming in um, or mm -hmm. any wildlife coming in and determining what our tolerance is for them? So when we talk mm -hmm. about this and when we talk about this, this really incredible training you've done uh, and the programs you offer, how much of the time do you spend talking not just in that aversive and reactionary, but in the prevention? Well, that's most of it, right? That's, say, 80% of it. It's always on prevention and proactive measures. Dealing with the bear after the fact is completely reactive. And so we, we put most of our energy into the proactive. That's what I spend most of my time doing. And does that work? I guess is that's, that, that's the place to end the conversation. It's like it, And that's where I think, you know, it's not apparent to a lot of people or people who who see bears a lot and don't have a tolerance for them. Um, so what is the, the final message? You know, we, we, we've talked about the aversive. We've talked about when the system doesn't work and how we need to look at that. Um, but how do we show the world that all of this is almost meaningless unless we really do focus on that prevention and that it is effective in the long term? Well, I think that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, if we if we had all those answers, we wouldn't have global warming, climate change, all that stuff. We, it, changing people's behavior is phenomenally difficult, and I don't know how to do it. I, you know, I, I, I have some strategies that are reasonably effective, but, you know, if we had the answers to those questions, this, this planet wouldn't be in the state it's in, to be fair. Um, and so, you know, we keep educating, we keep using the best possible tools we can to effectively 
um, create sustainable behavior change in people and provide officers with tools, provide people with the knowledge of what they need to do, and communities and policymakers with with um, the knowledge and tools that they need to, to create their smart communities. And, you know, we're getting there. And, and, and eventually there'll be enough social pressure to, uh, you know, where it'll be like, you mean, see somebody light up a cigarette now or drive drunk. You know, it's, it's pretty reasonably socially unacceptable. And so that's somewhere where we have to get is changing social norms. And that takes a long time. To learn more about the Get Bear Smart Society or how your community can benefit from the training they offer, visit bearsmart.com. That's it for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed the show and remember to follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio and Instagram at Howie Michael. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.